listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to Clip of Floats by Mike Brown, a former Barberton musician now living in New Franklin, Ohio. Mike is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so hang out with us at the end of the podcast. We'll tell you more about him and let you listen to that entire song. Now let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. The Ohio Penitentiary was the big state prison, a 23-acre fortress of concrete, brick, and steel that operated in downtown Columbus from 1834 to 1984. Wow, that's 150 years, and it probably didn't close a minute too soon. That place had a horrible reputation. It sure did. Over the years, some rankings had it as the worst prison in the country. Okay, Steve, let me pick your brain. Can you name any famous people who once resided in our infamous penitentiary? Well, I'll have to think back to our episodes. I think the horse thief Chef Tinker spent some time there. He was certainly famous from that day, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, three members of John Dillinger's gang also spent time there. They were still there when they were executed as well, right? Yeah, they sure were. As a matter of fact, they were at the prison during the fire, although they were in another wing. Oh, and that sailor thought was a vampire, James Brown? Oh, gosh, yes. I'd forgotten about that one. Well, there was also the country singer, David Allen Coe, who was born in Akron, if you didn't know that. And O. Henry, the author who wrote The Gift of the Magi, He went to prison for stealing money from a bank he worked for, reportedly to pay for his wife's medical treatments. He wrote a dozen of his short stories during his incarceration there. And there was a guy named Chester Himes who went on to pretty much invent the black crime novel. There are several biographies done of his very colorful life. No Johnny Cash, eh? Uh, No Johnny Cash. But David Allen Coe, O'Henry, and Chester Himes, you know, they're examples of men who paid their dues to society and went on to live very successful lives. I wanted to point them out because it can be easy for some folks to dismiss prisoners, but intermingled with the hardcore killers and unrepentant rapists are a lot of people who have the potential to turn their lives around and families at home eagerly waiting for them to return. I want you to hold on to that empathy, because in tonight's episode, there are 322 prisoners whose families are never going to see them again. They died in a horrific fire that engulfed a wing of the Ohio Penitentiary in 1930. This fire was so bad, it still ranks as the worst prison fire in North American history, and it was the worst in the world until 2012, when a Honduras prison killed 356 people. The fire at the Ohio Pen also stands as the third deadliest structure fire of any type in United States history. Almost 100 years later, we're still not sure what caused the fire. A candle and some oily rags left on some scaffolding, 
faulty wiring and a new addition being built, or maybe an incendiary device set by prisoners hoping to escape. Well, maybe these listeners will have an opinion after we tell the story. As Steve pointed out, the Ohio Penitentiary had a bad reputation, almost from the start. Some of it, obviously, came from the nature of the prison population. In 1893, a prison superintendent wrote, 10,000 pages of history of the Ohio Penitentiary would not give one idea of the inward wretchedness of its 1,900 inmates. The unwritten history is known only by God himself. But much of its notoriety came from its primitive conditions, made worse by an unconscionable overcrowding problem. A year before the fire, a prisoner's relief society wrote to the governor pleading for reform at the prison, calling it an outpost of hell. The prison was built to hold 1,500 people, When our story takes place in 1930, there were 4,300 men living there, almost three times its capacity. Many cells built for one or two men were crammed with four. You can blame the Great Depression on some of that. Certainly more men had turned to crime when the economy faltered, and the facility held prisoners whose crimes ranged from diabolical murders to simple theft. The state finally budgeted some money to expand the prison, and by 1930, construction crews were working on that. The work site included scaffolding set up along one side of the building at the roof line, right next to a cell block that housed 800 prisoners. They called it the Big Block. The afternoon of April 21st, it was the day after Easter, started normal enough and at the dinner hour, the men were taken to eat. After 5 p.m., the guards were in the process of getting them back to their cells. There was no single lever or button that worked these cages, by the way. Every prisoner had to be locked in individually. By 5.20 p.m., most of the prisoners were locked in for the night. Evidence later would show some were in the midst of playing checkers or cards. Some were reading books. Some were munching on candy bars they had stashed away for a late snack. That's when the first curls of smoke were spotted, coming from the roof of the block that stood six tiers high. That was followed by a muffled explosion, then a scream of fire. As smoke drifted into the building, panicked inmates started begging to be let out. Their guards didn't know what to do. And so, most decided not to do anything at all. As a matter of fact, they continued marching prisoners coming from dinner to their cells and locking them in. Thomas Watkinson was the guard responsible for the cell blocks in the path of the oncoming inferno. Later, he will insist the captain of the guards, 72-year-old John Hall, told him to keep those cells locked. Hall will deny ever having said that. Whoever made the decision, they lost precious time. 
The warden, Preston Thomas, was also slow to move. Worried that an escape might be in progress, he waited a full 20 minutes before calling the fire department. By then, the fire had spread, moving from the scaffolding to the roof right over the upper level of the big block. It should be said here that prison officials were so confident that their cell blocks of steel and concrete were safe from fire, they never bothered to keep a supply of firefighting equipment on hand. The only piece that ever had, a two-wheeled cart with a hose, had been discarded. The prison had never had so much as a fire drill under Warden Thomas. Later, he would testify that he didn't bother with drills because he expected everyone would simply use common sense if a fire broke out. But one thing the warden apparently didn't take into consideration was that roofs burn, mattresses and clothing burn, and so do construction supplies, timber, sawdust, tar, and kerosene. As firefighters began to arrive, the warden, still concerned about prisoners getting loose in the big city, called for armed support. Some 500 soldiers from Fort Hayes and a troop of National Guardsmen soon arrived. They surrounded the prison, armed with machine guns and bayonets on their rifles and orders to kill anyone who tried to flee. Meanwhile, inside the block, a couple of guards, Thomas Little and W.C. Baldwin, found Watkinson. He was still reluctant to part with those keys, and the guards wrested them away. The pair began opening cells until each was overcome with smoke. In some cases, the keys were passed on to inmates who continued the effort, while other inmates carried Little and Baldwin to the yard to recover from their smoke inhalation. The men with the cell keys reportedly got about 450 inmates out before the smoke grew too heavy to help more. For a brief moment, they had even reached the fifth and sixth tiers, but it was so hot that the keys were jamming in the locks, and most of the men on the floors appeared dead already. They had no choice but to turn and leave. Then the burning roof of the cell block collapsed. Anyone not already dead from smoke inhalation was now buried in burning rubble. In the 2012 book, A Historical Guidebook to Old Columbus by Bob Hunter, I found this quote, There was nothing to do but scream for God to open the doors. And when the doors didn't open, all that was left was to stand still and let the fire burn the meat off and hope it wouldn't be too long about it. There are lots of stories from those tragic hours. Some were inspiring. Apparently, the warden's daughter ran to the cell to help with some rudimentary first aid, although her father never entered the cell block to offer help. Witnesses also told of one convict who went through the wall of smoke and fire 12 times to help victims before not returning from his final trip. Other stories were shameful. Tells of guards who passed over inmates they didn't like to assist others. Firefighters also reported that when they first arrived, inmates pelted them with rocks and even attempted to cut their hoses at first. 
I mentioned at the start of this episode a man named Charles Himes, an inmate who went on to pioneer the black crime novel genre. He was there in the big block when the fire started. Himes was a graduate of Cleveland East High School and spent a few months at Ohio State University before dropping out and falling in with a bad crowd. He was sentenced to the pen for committing armed robbery. Himes wrote a story for Esquire magazine titled To What Red Hell about what he witnessed during the fire. He was moved by the simple humanity that came out of his fellow convicts. He wrote, The sights of convicts who were in for murder and rape and arson, who had shot down policemen in dark alleys, who had snatched pocketbooks and run, who had stolen automobiles and forged checks, who had mutilated women and carved their torso into separate arms and legs and heads and packed them into trunks, were now all working overtime at their jobs of being heroes moving through the smoke with reckless haste to save some other bastard's worthless life. White faces gleaming with sweat and streaked with soot, white teeth flashing in greasy black faces, all working like mad, some laughing, some solemn, some hysterically drunk from their momentary freedom, drunk from being brave for once in a cowardly life. Wow, he was some writer. And after the fire, one of the guards gave this account. I saw faces at the windows wreathed in smoke that poured through the broken glass. With others, I tried to get to them, but we could not move the bars. Soon, flames broke into the cell room and the convicts dropped to the floor. They literally burned alive before our eyes. Keep this in mind as well. This prison is in downtown Columbus, smack in the middle of a densely populated city. The screams of these men as they died echoed throughout residential neighborhoods. It was a night of terror on many levels. Anyway, once the roof collapsed, the fire only lasted about 30 minutes more. There was nothing left to burn. It was all but over by 8 p.m. Outside in the prison yard was a sea of bodies pulled from the Holocaust. Many were corpses. Others were alive, a chorus of moaning. In all, 322 inmates were killed. Another 130 were injured. No guards died. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio vs. the World makes history fun again. The nearby state fairgrounds was turned into a mortuary, and the horticultural building, which had been filled with colorful flowers just a few months before, the charred remains were laid out until they could be identified and returned to their families. 
Some of the dead had served years and were but days away from finishing their sentences. Some of the dead had been assigned to the big block just the day before. At least 40 of the dead were never claimed and were buried in three local cemeteries. The governor ordered a state investigation into the fire, but before his board of inquiry could even get started, Franklin County Prosecutor John Chester started his own interviews, less than 24 hours after the fire began. And that's when the blame game began. First, it was a question of who let things get out of control. Prisoners and some of the guards accused supervising guards and the warden of deadly inaction. The warden blamed the fire department for pointing their hoses at the wrong end of the cell block. The fire chief blamed the warden for taking his time in calling, saying nobody needed to die. The prosecutor himself didn't hide his opinion of the matter, repeatedly questioning the warden on how it came to be that only two guards with keys were left to try and release 800 prisoners. Then came the argument of how it all started. Three fire investigations were conducted, and all leaned toward arson. Though there was no evidence, everything had been burned up. The fire marshal had to admit the cause could have been a horrible accident, like the spontaneous combustion of a candle by some oily rags. One serious theory was faulty temporary wiring used for lighting the construction project. An electrician who worked on the renovation project testified that the day of the fire, the lights hanging over the scaffolding went out three times with no explanation. Another crew member said uninsulated temporary wires were wrapped around wooden trusses and that the bare bulbs they electrified were left on even after the work was done for the day. That certainly could have been a recipe for disaster. When the governor's board of inquiry concluded its report in May, it agreed with the fire marshal. The fire could have been caused by any of those things. Arson, bad wiring, or an untended candle. Then something happened that had everyone focusing on just one of those theories. About four months after the fire, a prison named James Raymond, a 30-year-old from Akron who was serving time for cracking a pool room safe and stealing $500, asked to be moved to solitary confinement. Prison officials obliged. Twelve hours later, on August 21, 1930, he hung himself using strips of fabric torn from his mattress. Now, eight months after that incident, as the one-year anniversary of the fire approached, Collier's Magazine published a story in which the prison warden, Preston Thomas, did not come out very well. Among the accusations made by the magazine was that James Raymond had gone to the warden before the fire and tried to tip him off, that there was an imminent escape attempt planned and fire might be a part of it, and that the warden didn't take any action to thwart it. That magazine article caused Warren Thomas to come out and publicly defend himself. And for the first time, he gave this story of James Raymond and the real reason he killed himself. 
The warden said Raymond came to his office the day before he hung himself and confessed to swiping candles and oil while he was laboring on the new addition because he and two others were planning to escape. The warden said of Raymond, he was a broken, cadaverous man, dry eyes twitching, voice terror-laden, a pitiable sight. He had been an extremely bold burglar in outside life. He told me, I've lost 30 pounds worrying over this warden. I'm going to get it off my chest. See, I've been swiping candles from the soap shop and a bucket of oil, swiping them for the bunch. What bunch? the warden asked. Raymond said, never mind what bunch. That bunch that's going to fire this Bastille. They're using candles and oil and gasoline. I know. I swiped the candles, and I helped test them, try them out to see how long they'd take to burn down. But I'm through with it. They're going to kill me. Then Raymond threw his hands out in a terrified gesture and said, you got to put me in solitary now. After his confession, the warden agreed to place him in solitary confinement. He went in that evening. The next morning, he was found dangling from a bar in his cell. This revelation took everyone by surprise. It had been a full year since the fire. Why wasn't this shared before? Of course, Raymond was no longer alive to confirm any of it. Later, the warden announced he'd put names to the bunch. He named the arsonists as Clinton Great, a 31-year-old from Virginia who had been caught in a robbery in Dayton, and Hugh Gibbons from Philadelphia, also serving time for a robbery in Cleveland. They also named another accessory, Jimmy Maloney from Cincinnati, who had also smuggled out candles and oil, though everyone agreed he had done so unwittingly. With Raymond dead and unable to testify to any of this, officials had to get confessions from Gibbons and Great. First, they put them in solitary confinement. Gibbons was considered the easier one to break, so he was put in the same cell where Raymond had killed himself. They even left the stacked blankets Raymond used as his scaffold and the improvised rope he'd fashioned into a noose. Great was put in the cell directly above Gibbons. Officials were hoping the more influential Great would find a way to communicate with Gibbons and then he might even encourage him to kill himself as a way to eliminate a witness. But with that possibility, a guard remained outside Gibbon's cell to act quickly if he did attempt suicide. And he did, three times. On the third attempt he had gotten so far along, the guard had to cut him down. One year after the fire, Franklin County Prosecutor Donald Hoskins announced He had confessions from both Great and Gibbons. He said they admitted to setting the fire, but that it hadn't been their intention to escape. Rather, they were protesting prison labor being used on the new construction and the fact that the addition included many more solitary confinement cells. The two men told him they thought they had arranged for the candle to burn down and ignite some kerosene and wood shavings while everyone was at dinner. But their timing was tragically off. 
Great and Gibbons were charged with first-degree murder. And so the trial was held. But a few minutes before the state made its closing arguments, another deal was struck. The men pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, unintentional murder, and were sentenced to life in prison. And for most people, that was it. They accepted that those inmates were the originators of the fire, especially when, on January 15, 1933, Clint Great was found hanging from a bar across his cell. He had finally succeeded in committing suicide. He became the second of the three conspirators to take his life. The third conspirator, Gibbons, reportedly also tried to kill himself in prison, but was never successful. He died in 1973, some say a broken and haunted man. But for some people, that ending just wasn't tidy enough. In the decades that have passed, some researchers and historians who have studied the incident argued the prisoners were set up, that the warden and his officers took a year to successfully manipulate the men in their charge into telling stories that would deflect blame from how badly the prison staff had handled the emergency. In any case, the fire led to some changes in Ohio law. The state repealed minimum sentencing, which was a chief cause for the overcrowding in the first place. And the fire is also what caused the Ohio legislature to establish the Ohio Parole Board in 1931. Within a year, the state released more than 2,300 prisoners on parole. Safety rules changed as well. Ohio mandated that prison cells have a lever or button that can open an entire tier of cells at once, as well as on-site firefighting equipment and training. What I'd like to know is if any of that prison building is still left. You know, whatever was left of it came down in the 1990s. It was in the area of downtown Columbus that's known as the Arena District. Okay, so I found this out while you were telling the story. During its existence, there were 315 men and women executed in the prison's electric chair. My God, that means more people died in that one fire than the total number of executions in the prison's 150-year history. Wow, that's some interesting trivia there. Did any of the inmates escape? I mean, whether planned or not, seemed like a good chance to just stroll away. Yeah, actually, two. One was just very temporary. Apparently, an inmate kind of got lost in downtown Columbus in the chaos, but then he turned himself into the very first police station he came across. The other guy went on a little vacation. His name was Michael Dorn, serving 15 years for burglary. He was well-respected in the prison. He was even made a trustee, and he was helping out in the hospital during the fire. And then, just before dawn, he put on a white doctor's coat, hung a stethoscope around his neck, and just walked away in the confusion. Uh, Did they ever catch him? Well, he spent uh, two weeks on the run before he was caught in a Cleveland hotel room with his girlfriend. Apparently, when he got back to the pen, the warden laughed it off and said, well, he'd been a good inmate till then, and he would just forget about his little adventure. This just seems like a story that nobody should ever forget. 
But I wonder how many Ohioans have no idea that this fire even took place because I didn't. Well, hopefully a lot fewer tonight than yesterday. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Mike Brown has been writing songs for 30 years, and throughout the 1990s, he performed all over Northeast Ohio with his band from my hometown, Barberton, Ohio. His band was Opal. Currently, Mike lives in New Franklin and hasn't been performing, but he continues to write songs and is even working on a book. The song we're featuring tonight was a solo project he did several years ago. It's called Float, and he said the lyrics reflect his life at that moment. We'll let you hear it now. Here's Float by Mike Brown. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.